Did I trick you? No, it's not an all-music edition of the Heart of the East End. It is, in fact, the vaudeville edition. And you will get the news. That was Ronald uh, Hanmer uh, leading us in with a little entrance and bow music from the Variety and Vaudeville record. You're listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. I'm Jenna Volpe, uh, and I've got the news notes from Long Island Morning Edition with Michael Mackey right here in my hot little hands, reporting live from the WLIWFM studio on Thursday morning, January 26, 2023. New York State Comptroller Thomas DiNapoli listed three Long Island school districts in varying levels of fiscal stress among 14 designated statewide yesterday. DiNapoli noted the new Suffolk School District, south of Kutchog, on the North Fork was listed in moderate fiscal stress, the middle of three levels designated by the Comptroller's office. John Asbury reports on Newsday.com that the three village school district in Setauket and Stony Brook and the remote Fishers Island School District located on an island off the North Fork uh, were at mildest level, uh, which was called susceptible to fiscal stress. The Comptroller's office releases the report Every year to monitor school district finances across the state, the districts on Dinapoli's list were identified for the fiscal year ending in June of last year. The report monitors town, towns and village school district budgets to determine if expenses match revenues. It excludes large districts like New York City. Three Village and New Suffolk were the only districts from Long Island to repeat on the list after appearing last year as being susceptible to fiscal stress. The Fishers Island District teaches 58 K-12 through students on the island located south of Connecticut and only accessible by ferry. Superintendent Christian Arsenault said the state's evaluation may impact smaller districts. He said... Their district is in good financial position. Quote, after speaking with the Comptroller's office, we agreed that some of the calculations used in determining fiscal stress points can affect smaller districts different, differently than larger districts. We look forward to working together to implement best practices to help improve and maintain the district's sound financial conditions. The new Suffolk School District includes a three-room 1907 schoolhouse teaching grades K-6, through six, according to the district's website. Uh, I don't know if they call, if they have a cute pet name for Fisher's Island, but they certainly have one for Shelter Island. So going out to the rock for this next one, the head of the Shelter Island School District is apologizing for a lesson for grades 6 through 12 that was quickly canceled after parents complained students were asked personal questions about their sexual preferences and whether they'd been sexually abused. Craig Schneider reports on Newsday.com that school superintendent Brian Dolger said the lesson was inappropriate and was shut down after it began a few weeks ago. He then sent an apology letter to parents, quote, I apologize for any heartache this has caused. Uh, I can assure you a lesson like this will not happen again. The lesson was presented by a first-year guidance counselor in gym classes with students in various grades attending different sessions. Lesson was supposed to be split into two separate days, but school officials shut it down early in the second day after parents complained. Angry parents railed against the lesson during the January 17th school board meeting, saying their children were upset by the questions. Some said they worried the lesson was aimed at politically steering the students. Superintendent Dolger said 
the lesson was intended to teach students empathy and that he did not know about the content beforehand. He said it was not intended to promote any political view. Quote, we're trying to find ways to help our secondary students come out of the pandemic, get along better with each other, socialize more, and in general be happier. He wrote in the letter, as we continue in this effort, any future lesson will be sent home to you before the lesson so that you are aware. End quote. Uh, Dolger, or Dolger, could be, uh, declined to say whether the counselor uh, who presented the lesson faced any disciplinary action. Here in Southampton Village, acrimony, accusations, discord, and dueling narratives have become de rigueur at Southampton Village board meetings over the past month and a half, with the four village trustees, Gina Aresta, uh, Bill Manger, Robin Brown and Roy Stevenson presenting a united front as they've clashed with Mayor Jesse Warren over an ever-growing number of issues. Kaylin Riley reports on 27East.com that whether it's as simple as appointing community members to serve on a tree committee or more serious business like hiring a new police chief, finding common ground with his fellow trustees has become an increasingly uphill battle for Warren, who's seeking re-election this spring and suggests that the tensions on the board may be politically motivated. Attempts by the trustees to disguise or tamp down their frustrations with them during meetings have seemingly been abandoned, with differences that may have previously been worked out behind closed doors spilling over into public view. Relations between the trustees and the mayor took a notable turn after the mid-December appointment of Suffolk County Deputy Police Commissioner Anthony Carter as the village's new police chief, a failed attempt, as Warren harshly criticized the appointment leading Carter to eventually withdraw. At their work session this past Tuesday night, the Southampton Village Board approved a resolution by a 4-1 to vote stating that if the mayor is going to be absent from the village or otherwise unable to perform his or her duties for a period in excess of 24 hours, the mayor must notify the deputy mayor and village administrator of that expected absence or unavailability in person or by telephone and by email. The impetus for adding that resolution to the agenda was a December 23 weather event that required the issuance of an emergency order and closure of a flooded road. Village officials claim they repeatedly tried to reach Warren to coordinate a timely response to the weather emergency, but were unsuccessful. Adding to the adversarial uh, atmosphere in Southampton Village government, Village Administrator Charlene Cagle-Betts filed a lawsuit this week suing Warren and the village, alleging she was subjected to age and gender discrimination, a hostile work environment, retaliation, and slander. Mayor Warren responded that a judge hired by the village to investigate those claims did not find evidence that any of the alleged discrimination took place. And staying in Southampton for this final item, a formation of jets flew over the town this past Tuesday afternoon. David Nardi took note and video of the aircraft at around 425 from his backyard on North Sea Meacox Road. Kaylin Riley reports on 27East.com that Air Force Global Strike Command Public Affairs spokesperson Carla Pamp uh, confirmed B-52s from Minot Air Force Base, North Dakota, and Barksdale Air Force Base, Louisiana, conducting a scheduled training mission Tuesday in the area. Quote, we regularly conduct training exercises in different areas of operation, demonstrating the flexibility of our bomber force, she wrote in response to an email query by the Southampton Press. Quote, strategic bomber missions enhance the readiness and training necessary to respond to any potential crisis 
or challenge across the globe. Reading the weather in Port Washington in honor of the 10th book uh, David Morrison has written on the history of the LIRR focused on the Port Wash line, looking like a partly sunny Thursday with a high near 45 degrees, breezy with a west wind, 22 to 25 miles per hour, gusts as high as 37 miles per hour, so make sure all items in your yard are secured. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 32 degrees, just about freezing. It is freezing, actually breezy, with a west wind 15 to 20 miles per hour, decreasing to 9 to 14 miles per hour after midnight. Winds still could gust as high as 31. Uh, Right now, it's 45 degrees, continuing with the vaudeville edition of the heart. Here's one I'd never heard before putting together this playlist for you. It's Jojo Worthington and the Vaude villain with Boo Radley from the 7 record of 2015. D.H. Lawrence and the Vaudeville Skiffle Show, followed by the Philharmonia Orchestra and Carl Davis after that. And the Brunettes from their um, Vaudeville, from their Boy Racer EP. I'm Gianna Volpe. This is Jojo Worthington. And you, whoever you are out there, you're awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, W. L-I-W-F-M, the weekday uh, morning and midnight show, The Heart of the East End, featuring music from all decades and genres, as well as folks from all walks of life, all because of you, the listener supporter of W-L-I-W-F-M.
A nice little nod to one of my favorite literary characters, Boo Radley. This next one, another uh, a nod to another literary favorite from high school, uh, being it's D.H. Lawrence in the Vaudeville Skiffle Show. If you've read Lady Shatterley's Lover, raise your hand. It's not the first time that it's happened. This is Diane from the Love, uh, Sons and, and Lovers record. Try to make you stay. 2015. It's late at night and you fall into my we won't make it through the day I spent my whole life trying to recognize The things that meant so much to you Now I can't hear you cause the record plays on It's playing songs that we want Listening to the vaudeville edition of the Heart of the East End, music from all decades and genres, all because of you, the listener supporters of Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. Thank you. 
It's reminiscing about the street where you lived as a kid. It's playing songs by the band you once were in. It's following bats that comes on the tube and going supermarket shopping. And it's just you. Brunettes leading us to the bottom of the nine o'clock hour on Thursday morning, meaning it's time for our thoughtful Thursday segment, underwritten by Green Hill Kitchen. Uh, there are many parts of David Morrison's tenth uh, history book on the Li Double R to be released that would feel quite welcome in the vaudeville edition of the Heart. Good morning, Mr. Morrison. Thank you for joining us this morning. Well, good morning, and thank you for inviting me. You know, it is an honor and a privilege, really, and I hope that we can do some more conversations uh, moving forward about all of these books that you've written about the LIRR. You've certainly researched your way into being an expert on our trains out here. Uh, you know, I actually wanted to focus a little bit more on you as a person as we get started looking at uh, your recent release. Uh, first of all, did you have Lionel Trains growing up? Can you tell us a little bit of your personal history with your love of the railroad? Oh, I sure did have Lionel Trains set running around a Christmas tree when I was little. And uh, I used to spend summers at uh, Croton Point Park uh, overlooking the Harmon shops of the New York Central and sitting on a sandbank looking at those trains. That's when I really fell in love with trains. I 
job on Long Island Railroad, working for 25 years, and I spent my last 10 years as a branch line manager. I retired in uh, 1999, and I've been researching and writing books since then. And my 10th book on the Port Washington branch has just come out. It's nice that I'm talking today because yesterday I was at the new Grand Central Madison station. When the first train ran from Jamaica into the new station, and the governor was on board, and it was an exciting day. You were on the train? Yes, I, I rode the train. I photographed the crew before the train left Jamaica, and uh, we saw the brand new uh, station in uh, Grand Central Madison. And then before the train left, I was able to take photographs of the crew before the train departed for uh, the return trip to Jamaica. I love to photograph crews at historic events. What a beautiful um, day to be speaking to you. And that, that was indeed my second uh, question to you. Uh, but I just wanted to say not only researched, but you lived your way into uh, being an expert on the LIRR. Uh, I, I really am glad. I, it said that I imagine since this history or history press book, but it's not, it's Arcadia uh, on the Port Wash branch is your 10th. Uh, that you might have some thoughts about the brand new Grand Central Madison station. So please do, uh, with your experience and all of the research you've done, tell us your thoughts uh, about the station and and about the the day. When you think about it, the the day was so, so historic. The first Long Island Railroad train to depart the brand new Penn Station was on September 8th, 1910. Now we have another exciting day where the Long Island Railroad is using a brand new station. And when you think about it, the Jamaica Station building opened on March 9th, 1913. Grand Central Terminal opened on February 2nd, 1913. So both Jamaica and Grand Central Terminal opened in 1913, and here we had a train yesterday running from the two 1913 railroad stations. So that that added to the stark significance of the day. Unbelievable. As far as the Port Washington branch, it's a stark year for the Port Washington branch because on June 23rd this year, it will mark the 125th anniversary of the Port Washington branch. And train service to Port Washington was uh, made possible by the construction of the Manhasset Viaduct. Trains used to uh, terminate at Great Neck, and it wasn't until 20 years later that Manhasset Viaduct was constructed, allowing trains to enter. Port Washington Station, and it's significant about the Manhasset Viaduct is that a segment in the uh, movie The Perils of Pauline, there was a scene filmed on the Manhasset um, Viaduct, and, and that was a uh, silent movie, so that went way back. And we actually... But it's going to be a historic day this year in Port Washington, 
And I'm pleased that my book had just come out, and uh, it tells quite a bit of history on the Port Wash branch. It was an exciting branch because that's the branch that had the home station for the 1939 and 1964 World's Fairs. Right. It's also the home station for the uh, the late and great Shea Stadium. Right, and right. Of course, now it's a uh, city field, uh, well, it's Point Station. There's a lot of history on the branch, and I think that uh, people will enjoy uh, reading a lot about that history that's in my my new book. Increasing the service to the then-neglected North Shore towns. I've I've lined up Tolchard Evans' silent movie Rag to play us out when we're finished with uh, this interview. But I, I did want to, speaking of film, uh, the early 20th century photographs that are prominent throughout uh, this book are stunning. I was especially taken by the shots of LIRR ferries at Whitestone Landing. I I love the fact that the Mm. railroad owned tugboats and ferries as it fits perfectly with the ways in which our elders and ancestors more commonly uh, traveled when visiting or leaving Long Island. Can you talk a little bit about the rich research materials you sourced from historical societies and books written by other folks on the LIRR, not to mention trainsarefun.com? Oh, that is by far the best website, trainsarefun.com. Also, the books that uh, Ron Zeal had written and uh, Vincent Seafried, they're uh, two persons who were deceased, but uh, each of them had written several books. So there's a lot of wealth of uh, research in their books. And also, I have quite an extensive library of uh, photographs and photographs uh, four by five negatives that were shot by uh, Fred Weber, who was a Long Island Railroad Claims Department photographer. Many of his uh, photographs were photographed during uh, the early 1940s when photographs were strictly forbidden around railroad facilities because it was during World War II. I have hundreds of postcards, uh, early uh, 1900 postcard views of many of the stations and the postcards are a, a fabulous source for historic photographs because uh, during those days people were making telephone calls they right. were communicating by telegrams and by postcards so there's many many postcard views that show historic railroad stations i have quite an extensive library and of course uh Libraries on Long Island and historical societies are a good source of information, too. And I love making presentations at the libraries and historical societies. In fact, this past Sunday, I was at the Babylon Village Historical Society. And I've got a a presentation coming up at the West Babylon uh, Library on February 9th. So I, I love speaking to people about the history of the railroad, too. And I appreciate uh, you giving me the opportunity to speak uh, today on the radio about the uh, history of Long Island Railroad. So appreciated, and it will be the first of many, uh, Mr. Morrison. You know, I-, I can only imagine what your collection looks like, and, I- and I'm hoping, c- take us back again to the beginning. Talk a little bit about the first time, how you developed your love of trains to begin with. 
Oh, well, as I said, it was at Harmon, New York. I used to, I was born in 1945. So when the New York Central stopped using locomotives, it was in 1954. I was only eight or nine years old when I used to sit on the sandbank at Harmon and view these huge steam locomotives being turned on the roundhouse turntable and watching the uh, locomotives uh, getting their tenders filled by coal at the huge coal dock that was at Harmon. And uh, once once I, I saw that at Harmon, then railroading really got into my blood. Yeah. But I might add that my great-great-grandfather was Charles Sexton, who was the 10th mayor of Camden, New Jersey, but before becoming mayor, he was a, a coach trimmer, in other words, a, a coach repairman on the Camden Amboy Railroad, which is one of the earliest railroads in the country. So my love for trains is really in my blood through my great-great-great-grandfather. I'm glad you did add that that note. Uh, speaking of, of folks that are notable, who is Craig Smith? And, and tell us about your relationship to him. Oh, uh, Craig Smith was a uh, branch line manager with He was in charge of the Port Washington branch during the 1990s. Charming man. He was uh, ex-Army uh, Airborne and a uh, rigid-built guy. I mean, strong guy, but very kind and compassionate. One day at Great Neck, when service was down the tubes, and I went over to help Craig Smith, a man approached Craig in the waiting room, cursing and calling Craig all sorts of names. I thought Craig was going to pound the guy on top of the head and drive him into the floor. But Craig just looked at the man and said, I'm sorry you feel that way about me. I the man stormed away. Two minutes later, he came back to Craig and apologized profusely, saying, I'm so sorry I said that about you. Craig looked at the man, smiled and laughed, and he says, well, you all have our bad days. And he says, this is just one of our bad days. And both laughed and they talked with each other. That's the kind of man Craig Smith was. And I dedicated uh, my book on the Port Washington branch to Craig Smith. What what, um, a showing of high emotional intelligence. Uh, What a perfect person to dedicate your 10th uh, book about the history of the L.I. Double R. Uh, we will have you back. I'll read just a, a little bit of the beginning, and you can find uh, David Morrison's uh, book on the history of the Port Wash branch. Ask any of uh, any of your local bookstores for to order you a copy if you can't find it on the shelves. Images of Rail Long Island Railroad Port Washington branch. Uh, I'll just read a little bit from the beginning as I I lead you out, Mr. Morrison. These are your words. The Port Washington branch is the third busiest of the Long Island Railroad's 11 branches with 14 million annual riders. It trails the Port Jefferson branch, 19 million, and the Babylon branch, 18 million. The branch is the only one that does not service uh, Jamaica Station, electrified in 1913, the Port Washington branches double track to a point east of Great Neck, where it turns into a single track, crossing the Manhasset Viaduct, 
stopping at Plain Dome and terminating at Port Wash Station. The station building is known as a headhouse, with the building being perpendicular to the tracks. Uh, when the LIRR started running trains to Greenport in 1844, there was no service given to communities on the north, north-south shores. Riders getting off at stations through the center of Long Island would have to board stagecoaches to reach shoreline destinations. In the 1850s, smaller railroads were created to service neglected towns on the North Shore. I'm Gianna Volpe. That was David Morrison. Uh, This is Tolchard Evans. And you, whoever you are out there, you're awesome. And you just heard the Thoughtful Thursday segment underwritten uh, by Green Hill Kitchen. On this, the vaudeville edition of The Heart on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. All right, I love me some steam-powered giraffe. So I had to include Clockwork Vaudeville from their album One Record of 2009. 
I don't know if it's any good. We're going to test it out right now. Here on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. There, brought myself a nickel, bought a pickle, had changed to spare. Thought I'd spend a cent or two to see what the robots could do. There were wires all around, electrical sound, steam from their exhaust. Everybody's going to the clockwork vaudeville. Everybody wants to see the show. People grab the door, scream and shout for more. While music and song fill the So sharply, well, they sang and danced a catchy tune with the Tomaton robotic beat. The guitar strings hum to the beat kept by the tambourine. Boilers making steam, metal gleaming, songs with a good tune. Stomp their feet and join in with the robot feet While music and song fill the air Walk, work, vaudeville Walk, work, vaudeville Walk, work, Oh, not wrong. 
Oh, steam-powered giraffe. How could I have ever doubted you? <laughs> Who else is getting Bo Burnham vibes from steam-powered giraffe? Vern Langdon on deck. If you haven't seen Bo Burnham's Inside yet, geez, take a moment, won't you? <laughs> We've got uh, George Burns and the Flanagan Brothers on deck dedicating those two tracks to my late grandfather. I just lost him yesterday. Uh, so we'll be playing the night Pat Murphy died from the Flanagan Brothers after uh, George Burns and Larry Wilde talking Was vaudeville. Was it easier to make an audience laugh in the days of vaudeville, in a vaudeville theater, than it was to evoke laughter from a radio or a television <coughs> studio audience? Yeah, it's easier to make an audience laugh that pays to come in. Because they're paying to see you. They get dressed and they put on a collar and tie and they get into their cars or whatever they do and they pay so much to see you, and, and the fact that they come in to see you, they like you right away. And, and that is a, it's easier to make that kind of an audience. It's very tough to make an audience laugh that doesn't get paid, because they get to be very critical. <laughs> Do you think people laugh more readily today than they did, say, 40 years ago? Well, I think if a thing is basically funny, if it strikes you funny, you'll laugh as loud now as you did 40 years ago. I don't think there's any difference in the volume of laughter. I think people are funny today, and and uh, everybody has somebody that's funny. You know, like, I don't know about you, but maybe you're funny to somebody. Like, uh, I can do anything to Jag Benny and make him laugh, and, and there's a lot of people that can do anything to me and make me laugh. So, I think laughter is... I've gone into nightclubs, and I've watched different fellas work, and... Uh, for instance, um, what's his name? Is he the Ribeiro Hotel? Uh, the, uh, he's a great comedian. Um, Shecky Green? Shecky Green. Now, he's a, you know, I mean, it's impossible not to laugh at Shecky Green. He's so funny. He's so funny. And he's clever. You know, he can do anything. Shecky, he can dance, he can sing, he can, and he's wild. You know, he can take falls, and, and but, he's, but he's basically funny. You see, there are comedians that are very good, but they're not funny. For me, I'm talking about, I'm just talking about myself. There are guys that look at them, I say, gee, great, great, great mechanic. And I applaud it, I think it's, it's fine. He knows his exits, and knows his entrances, and knows music, and he knows how to build it up, and how to bring it down, and knows how to quiet it all, and knows all the tricks, but he's not funny. Why, hello, Tim, what's the matter with you? You look awful sad. Ah, me boy, I just buried an old bosom friend of mine by the name of Pat Murphy. Did you hear about it? No, I didn't. That's too bad. When did he die? Well, it was like this. Murphy and me were working together on a building. When one day, all of a sudden, the scaffold broke and down he fell to the pavement below. Holy St. Pat, was he killed dead? Sure he was killed. What do you think? After the height of that fall, 18 stories high, why, it'd be a miracle, man, if he was alive. Oh, I suppose it was the sudden stop. Then, no, listen, if you want to hear about it, keep still. All right, go ahead. Well, says the boss to me, 
Kelly, you better go up and break the news as aid as you can to his wife. So up I went and I knocked at the door and says I, is it here where the widow Murphy lives? And says she, I'm Mrs. Murphy all right, but I'm no widow. Oh, you're not, eh? Just wait till you see what they're carrying you up the stairs. <laughs> what are you laughing about? It's no joke. Why, is that the age you could break the nose of the poor woman? Well, at any rate, we had a lot of fun at the wake. We danced and sung all night. At the wake? At the wake. What did you sing? We sung the night Pat Murphy died. How does that go? Well, it was the night that Paddy Murphy died of the night we'll never forget. All the boys got rolling drunk and some in sober yet. As long as the bottle was passed around, the folks were feeling gay. Till O'Leary came with a bagpipe, some music for to play. Mrs. Murphy sat in the corner, pouring out her grief. Well, Kelly and his pal, the dirty robin thief, sneaked up into the ante room and a bottle of whiskey stole. And placed the bottle on the corpse to keep the liquor cold. Sure, that's how they show their respect to Patty Murphy. That's how they show their honor and their pride. They said it was a sin and a shame, and they winked at one another. Everything in the wake house went the night Pat Murphy died. About two o'clock in the morning, some dirty blue-eyed scamp Rolled upon the coffin lid, here lies a tramp They stopped the clock so Mrs. Murphy could not tell the time And at the quarter after three, she have told her it was nine Now the whole dang gang got merry shoe, they didn't care a red If Mrs. Murphy or the whole dang gang was dead Oh, all the tricks I ever saw, they made me shiver with fear. They took the ice right off the course and placed it on the bear. Well, that's how they show their respect to Patty Murphy. That's how they show their honor and their pride. They said it was a sin and a shame, and they winked at one another. Everything in the wake house when the night Pat Murphy died. Looking forward to dancing all night with everyone from the Volpe family because the man who could do anything, Raymond Carmine Volpe Sr., would have wanted it that way. I remember at his 90th birthday party, he his wish was that uh, we would find one another, meaning uh, everyone at his party, uh, to walk up and say, who the hell are you? Uh, rest in love, Grandpa, leading you into the NPR news break at the top of the hour with Studio G Vaudeville Nights and Peter Bufano's Vaudeville from the Circus Smirkus record. I'm Gianna Volpe, and you, whoever you are out there, you're awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM, the Vaudeville edition of the Morning and Midnight Show, The Heart of the East End.